and welcome to the Shining Light Podcast. This is Pastor Sam. And Patrick, no compromise with evil way. So recently we've talked quite a bit about dispensationalism, and today we're going to be looking a little bit at dispensationalism, but we're going to be looking at it as also viewing the opposite of dispensationalism on the Christian perspective, which is covenant theology. So we're going to be looking at dispensational versus covenant theology. Now this is this is something that's really important to look at, I think, to understand uh, how these two things conflict here, because it really does produce the two main veins of theology. You know, uh, you get out into the theological debating world, and you have um, you know Calvinism versus Arminianism. You have uh, premillennialism versus postmillennialism. You have uh, all this kind of stuff versus this kind of stuff, but the reality of it is, is that these two things can almost always be identified in one or two groups of how they interpret the Bible, which is either through covenant theology or through dispensational theology. How are you viewing the Bible? How are you interpreting the Bible? And that is what's what's really, really important, I believe, to understand. Um, but before we get into this real deep, I think it's important that we understand what dispensationalism is. Hopefully you've listened to our several uh, podcasts on dispensationalism. I think we've got somewhere in the ballpark of seven or eight or something like that on dispensationalism. And so you need to be checking that out. Um, but Patrick, could you give us a quick rundown of what is dispensationalism? Well, I've, uh, we've been talking about it. It's the way that God uh, just establishes his, his order, how he rules through his, um, um, what's that word? Dispensations? Yeah, dispensations, yeah. <laughs> I, I was actually looking at this. I, I got a, a definition here that says, Dispensationalism attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history on the basis of the sovereign rule of God through several dispensations. And a dispensation is a divinely ordained order prevailing at a particular period of history. Right. That, so, that, that idea of it's a ruling factor. Yeah, the ruling factor is what I was looking for. Okay. So at that time. So uh, so that's what dispensation is. Now, covenant theology it attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history based on covenants, the covenants that God has given at various times. And we'll, we'll be going over there. We talked a little bit about those in some of the... Uh, dispensations we've we've been over so far we're going to talk a little bit more about that today as a comparison right because it's it's important to understand that a dispensationalist doesn't deny the covenants of the bible they don't go and say that that hey covenants don't exist uh in fact a it, we're going to be really probably examining the davidic covenant uh here that's that's one of the most important covenants that that there's a a major difference on um and in looking at that davidic covenant uh, and there's also, you know, the uh, covenant to Noah, the, the, I believe the Noahic covenant is how you pronounce or say that or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and then you also have the Abrahamic covenant and things like that. But interestingly, and uh, I, I might be throwing a fast one here on you, but covenant theology, it's based, they base their interpretation on three different covenants and it's none of those ones. Okay, here. that's interesting. Uh, so it, it's they base them on the covenant of redemption, works, and grace. I actually had yeah, I saw that when I was looking okay. last night. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the uh, these these different covenants. Now the covenant of redemption here, 
uh, from, from what I understand this, is that it's a covenant that was made between God the Father and God the Son before time began, before Adam and Eve were created, before all this and that, and they got together and they said, hey, uh, basically God the Father says to Jesus, he says, hey, I'm going to create a bunch of messed up people who are going to sin a bunch. Uh, you want to go die on the cross and save them? Yeah. Do you remember the Bible reference for that one, Patrick? <laughs> no, I don't believe there is one. There's not one. <laughs> um, the, the, this is all in, in inference or an implication that they're putting into Scripture of saying because God is sovereign and he knew everything and all this and that, that he must have gone and made a covenant within himself to go and to save mankind or some of mankind, as, as they would put it. Isn't that interesting that We'll, we'll look at what the Bible says, but we'll start focusing on what it doesn't says. Use our imagination of what he could have said. Convince ourselves that not only could he have said it, he probably said it. And now here's a doctrine for us to preach. Right. You know, this doesn't have to do with uh, the Bible, but it has to do with the law of interpretation. Um, what did uh, Scalia say about the, the Constitution? The Constitution says what it says, and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. You know, I, I think we could uh, remove the word constitution and insert the word Bible here. And, and this is really, I think, what interpretation comes down to. Are we original intent or are we something else? Okay. Uh, the Bible says what it says and it doesn't say what it doesn't say. And that's, that's the first issue that I have with covenant theology is that it's based on covenants that don't exist. It, it, this doesn't exist in the Bible. Okay, that God, we, we don't have this. Now, am I sitting here saying that, that God the Father and God the Son couldn't have done this? No, that's not my point. My point is, is that God didn't want us to interpret the Bible based on a covenant that doesn't exist, because if he wanted us to do that, he would have given us that covenant, right? It would be in the Bible, so it would be something we wouldn't have to debate. It would be there just as the Abrahamic covenant is there. We know exactly what it says and that it's unconditional. We know those things about it because it's written down. It's not as, I didn't speculate it. You didn't speculate it. Moses wrote it down when he wrote Genesis, when God inspired him to give the account of the, the history and the start of mankind. That's, that's absolutely right. Now, the covenant of works was a covenant between God the Father and man, uh, specifically Adam, that he would work within the garden, that he would, would do his job in the garden. Okay? Okay, that's, yeah. Uh, I mean... So as long as he did his works, everything's good. Yeah. And, and you know, I, that, that's kind of there, I guess. I, I don't know if you'd really we call it... A covenant, but yeah, uh, you could say it was an expectation. Right, right. That's more what I what I would put it is is an expectation. Um, I don't think I would base my my hermeneutic, my interpretation. Well, I, I know I wouldn't base my hermeneutic or interpretation. Okay, I'm glad we got that. that cleared up. <laughs> um, but it's there, and I, or kind of there anyway. Yeah. And then the the last one is the covenant of grace, which which I I mean I okay okay you know hey you accept Christ as your savior and, and you're saved. That's a covenant. I and mean, we would agree on that. That's exactly right. 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 And, and that's, yeah, that's fine to to use some interpretation there. Um, but they use these covenants to interpret the Bible, and this leads to a non-literal interpretation. That was going to be my question. I was going to say, would you say that dispensationalists, such as ourselves, would, would look at the Bible in a more literal sense, what the Bible says it says? Other than obviously there's, where there's symbolic, mm. when it's obviously symbolic, then it's symbolic. But, but where it plainly states what it says, that's what it means. And in the clearest and plainest sense, that's what it means. But the covenant theolo theologian would say what? The Bible is more 
allegorical allegorical more symbolic um not necessarily saying it might not literally mean what it's saying it might be hinting at a thought or an idea or a concept um but not literal Right, and and that's my big the biggest issue with covenant theology. But, but now they would say some parts of the Bible they they would yeah. agree it's literal, right? So we're not yeah. saying they're saying everything's allegorical, right? So, so, so let me take this to its extreme, and I'm I'm I just said to its extreme. Most people are not extreme. Most covenant theologians are not this extreme. I have great friends that are covenant theologians. I disagree with them, and they would sit here and say, "Well, I don't believe what I'm about to present here." And that's, I'm not accusing them of that. If you're a covenant theologian listening to this, I'm not accusing you of believing this. There are a few out there who do, but the point is, is more I'm coming to a logical conclusion or a logical extreme, you might say, than I am a a true conclusion of what everybody uh, believes. And the problem is, is it's the idea of if you continue on this path, you come to these ideas, not that you're right there right now. And, And that is... Uh, covenant theologians, they might say something like, well, uh, you have the belief that, um, it, I'm trying to think like family grace, the idea of because my daddy was saved, therefore this person has this extended grace to them. Now, that grace, I would say, is is that hopefully they're living in a Christian home and they have the gospel presented to them and that's, that's a grace, That what I would say. But they would mean it in the idea of that extreme conclusion is because my daddy was saved, I'm saved. Oh, that would that would be pretty extreme, right? And there are some that would believe that. That's this is where you get the idea. A lot of the idea of infant baptism that brings you to salvation hmm. uh, is because you're being baptized, and that's the sign that you're within this family unit, uh, within this church unit, and so that grace is being extended to you. Um, we believe, as the Bible teaches, as it literally, naturally teaches it that salvation is only through an individual accepting Christ as their Savior. Right. Yep. Now, uh, here's a big thing to look at to understand the literal versus non-literal thing. Because I've almost quit saying that I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, though I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I've almost abandoned that and started saying I believe in a natural interpretation of the Bible. Patrick, you touched on this. The Bible is obviously allegorical in some places. Mm -hmm. Now, in those places, we read it as an allegory. For example, Song of Solomon. Patrick, do you really think that Solomon's wife had a tower for a neck, dove's eyes, teeth that were uh, sheep, all twins, there was none bearing among them, she didn't play hockey, Mm -hmm. Uh, and... um, pomegranates for temples. Do you believe that that's really what she was? I think the sheep thing might be right, but no, the others I would not. <laughs> no, no, I would not say that would be correct. Any of those things. But the, these are writing techniques sometimes, you know, in a, in a different type of writing when you're trying to, to push like concepts or be more visual and, and make it larger than life. And that has its place in writing. Most of the Bible is not that. There's there's places that are symbolic, such as Revelation 13, but it tells an actual truth, but it's done symbolically or allegorically. But the rest of Revelation is not. Most of Revelation is, is descriptions of things that, that that John would have seen, but it's it's literal. It's talking about real events that are going to happen at a designated time, just like most of the Bible. Is there allegory in the Bible, like you said? Absolutely, there is, and it, it's fairly easy to tell. 
but not all the Bible's allegory. That's absolutely, absolutely right. Now, uh, with this, there's a few other major distinctions about dispensationalism and covenant theology. But before we get into those, let me tell you about our website. That's at... I I said Revelation 13. I mean Revelation 12. Sorry. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Because Revelation 13 is... Yeah. Revelation 12. Okay. Revelation 13 is right on. Okay. Well, the whole Bible's right on, right? Yeah. I was going, boy... (laughs) <laughs> Whoa, I got my numbers off there. I got to get that big. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Well, here at the Shining Light Podcast, uh, if you've been enjoying what you're listening to, you need to go over to theshininglightministries.com. Theshininglightministries.com. There you can find all kinds of articles written by Patrick No Compromise with Evil Wyatt. Great articles. And you can find some terrible ones written by me. Skip over those ones. No, no, no. Yeah, see, Patrick just wants you to read mine so that then when you go read his, you go, wow, this Patrick is, is an incredible writer. That's not what my wife says. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find all kinds of, uh, of resources there. You can also find things like a primer on Islam and was Christian, uh, or excuse me, was Christian American nation? Was America a Christian nation? Was it founded as a Christian nation? And these DVDs you can find on there for $15 in our Shining Light store. You can also find an Apostate Tears 16-ounce stainless steel Apostate Tears water bottle. You can find all kinds of things there. And you should go and check that out. That's at theshininglightministries.com. Once again, theshininglightministries.com. But today we're looking at covenant theology versus dispensational theology. And so far we've really looked at this idea of the difference between the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, now there's a few other things that uh, that really bring up in, in differences here. And uh, what are some of those things, Patrick? Well, let's see. You know, obviously it comes up the difference between um, Israel and the church. So in uh, dispensational um, theologies, like what we believe, the the Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham, talking about he would be blessed, he would be the father of nations, that his the Jewish people would, would be God's people, and all these different things. That was a unconditional covenant that God made. So we would say that Israel is still relevant today, right? Right. Now, uh, now I don't want you to get confused with covenant theology. Covenant theology, there's a difference between covenant theology and replacement theology. They want right. to make sure that that's put out there. They don't believe that the church has replaced Israel, right? The the some do, but yeah. <laughs> if you're, if if your covenant and replacement, you would believe that because replacement right. theology means they think that the church has taken the place of Israel in God's promises. So now Israel's irrelevant and and that sort of thing, and now the church has all those promises given to them. Israel's just on the side. Right. Whereas in covenant theology, would actually do a mixing rather than a replacing. So what they would go and say is that uh, Israel in the Old Testament was actually the church. Mm-hmm. That's what they say. The church existed mm-hmm. from the beginning. Israel was the church, but now with, with Christ coming, now we as Gentiles that are now Christians become part of that greater church, which included initially just the Jews. Right. Now you might be sitting here saying, so what's the big deal about that? Well, l- let me give you an example from listening to a sermon uh, of a church that, that does preach covenant theology. And it, it was interesting because I had some friends ask me, you know, uh, why, what's wrong with this church? Uh, all our friends are going there. What's wrong with it? We went over the doctrinal statement. 
uh, and I decided I'd watch some sermons. And the first sermon, which was just the most recent sermon that they had at that time, I clicked it on, and this is how the guy started off, okay? This wasn't me going out trying to find, oh, covenant theology. He just started off that way. Uh, <laughs> he went mm-hmm. and he, he goes and he says, okay, so the church gathers together. The church gathers together. Why does the church gather together? The church gathers together because back in the Old Testament, the uh, Israel all gathered around Moses to hear the word of the Lord, to hear God's message. And so that's why we need to gather together today is because the uh, Israel uh, went and gathered together. And so we're following that example. <laughs> well, that's not how I interpret scripture. Uh, now, I, I do come to the same conclusion that the church ought to gather together, mm-hmm. but I get there a totally different way. I get there by way of Hebrews 10.25 that it says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, but exhort one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. God commands us to gather as a church. It has nothing to do. If, if Moses wouldn't have gathered the people together, or if he did gather the people, or if he chose not to, or if the people chose not to come, it doesn't matter. We still have the obligation whether we have that example or not, to gather together because God commanded it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, because individually when we're out there living in society, right, we're part of society. So you go to work, you, you come home, your entertainment, the television, what your kids are being taught in school, they're bringing home to you. All these things are worldly influences on us. When we come to church, we can push aside all those and I'll call them satanic influences because when they're apart from God, that's what they are. If they're contradictory to God, they're worldly, secular interest. So we come to church to be away from that, to associate with one another of common faith, common belief, to be re-energized, if you will, of like-minded people, saved souls, to be charged now so we can then go back out in the world and hopefully not just be absorbing, but giving back, trying to be an influence rather than letting the world influence us. It is vital that we be together with a group of believers because mm-hmm. of that. Absolutely. And that's, see, that that's kind of the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology. It's not always that there is a, a terribly ending conclusion of great disagreement, but it's often quite a disagreement as to how you get there. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's something to remember here. We're not sitting here calling covenant theologians uh, Satan worshipers. No, and we're not, we're not even stating that's next that they're week. unsaved. Oh, just just. <laughs> No, it's a disagreement. It's it's um, a theological disagreement. It's it's not prime primary. Like if somebody says, "Well, Christ was not born of virgin birth," there is no Trinity. That uh, Christ didn't die on a cross for sins. These are foundational. You disagree with that? Doesn't matter where else you are. You're not saved. We're not attacking uh, our brothers and sisters on this, but we're disagreeing with them and we're telling why we would disagree. And we also believe there are different outcomes too, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the eschatological differences in our opinions. Right. In fact, uh, Patrick, would you call yourself a fundamentalist? Fundamental? Um, yeah, I pretty much would. You put the fun in fundamental? I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I have to have a different definition for fun, I guess. I'm a pretty boring guy, actually. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... Uh, but, but yeah, we're fundamentalists, okay? We believe in the fundamentals of the faith. Now, here's a, an interesting fact about this. This comes from the Presbyterian Church, fundamentalism. I am not a Presbyterian at all. I'm a dispensationalist to the bone. But here's the deal. The Presbyterian Church comes out and says that dispensationalism is a heresy. Okay? <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but but yet we're and, still fundamentalists. Um, <coughs> it's it, it's that idea. I got choked up on that one. Yeah, there was a bone in that joke. Uh, <laughs> there, and that's the idea of of putting this together. There is a disagreement, but but this isn't to say I I, pro- I wouldn't go to a church that teaches covenant theology or stands for covenant theology. But but that's not to say that these guys are terrible. That's not to say that they're not brothers in Christ. That's not to say that they're not doing work for Christ. They very well could be. Um, and, and that's, that's good. So that's important to understand. But, but Patrick, you started talking about that idea of the eschatological views. And and I think that's important because, uh, uh, looking at the time here, it's probably going to take us that much time to discuss these things. Um, (laughs) and, uh, what are the, the three major eschatological views that are out there in, in, uh, Christianity today? Well, you have three views, and the, the first would be uh, premillennialism, uh, the other would be postmillennialism, or, and the third would be amillennialism. So uh, the millennium, of course, is talked about in Revelation, that, that thousand-year reign of Christ literally on earth that, that, we, that we believe that will take place after the events of Revelation, after the, uh, uh, the Antichrist comes, uh, the different judgments, the, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, uh, the battle of Armageddon, which I should say is a massacre of Armageddon. Um, at that point, then there will be a thousand-year millennial reign established on earth. A premillennialist would believe that. We are dispensational premillennialists. Another thing about dispensationalism is we are uniquely, almost all pre, uh, dispensationalists are premillennial. Okay. Right, yeah, you can't be non-premillennial and be a dispensationalist. Because we're believing literally what the Bible says. We're not saying this is allegory. We're talking about a sequence of events that will take place as God has promised at the end. This is prophetic. This is a book. So prophecy means it's going to happen. It will happen exactly the way God said it will happen in the sequence that God says it will happen. So that's a premillennial view that after these things literally happen, and then and then there's, there's rapture in there as well that that uh, most dispensationalists believe in a pre-tribulation or pre-millennial rapture, right? Mm-hmm. So um, then there are those that would say, and this would be covenant theology would go into these uh, other ideas, and there's some different twists on these things. But there's the post-millennial, meaning after the millennium, you mm-hmm. know that things will happen. So there's an allegory. This is maybe not really literal. Also, amillennialism, that we're actually living in the millennium right now. There's not going to be a, an actual where Christ comes and reigns on the earth. He's reigning in men's hearts right now. Therefore, the millennium has already started, so these sorts of things. And both of these other views do not take into account that revelation and all of that discourse and the things that, that build into revelation, other biblical prophecies, even going back to the Old Testament, they don't take into account that these are literal things that must happen. Okay, right. So they dispense with that. And of course, they take away that urgency right? that, that we're feeling mm-hmm. and, and the terrible things that are going to fall upon the face of the earth. It's better to be a Christian, folks, whether, whether it's, it's uh, you die tomorrow or tonight, you want to go to heaven, the the... Um, it, it completely changes what Bible prophecy means to people, depending on what your view is, premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. Right. That idea of postmillennial is uh, ushering in the kingdom uh, so that, that Christ will return. And uh, one thing I do appreciate with those guys is that they are generally much more politically active because they are trying to kind of create a, uh, a theocracy almost. Yeah, yeah, um, things have to get better, like dominion theology, these sorts of things, right. where we are called to make the world a better place in preparation for the arrival of our king, but he can't come until we do our part. 
Right. That's what they, they would say. So there are, there's a lot of theonomists that are post-millennial, and I appreciate that because I appreciate theonomy. Um, but also then amillennialism is the, the, they're kind of the fruitcakes of, of this, but, uh, <laughs> but it's the idea that Jesus is reigning right now in our heart. And, uh, and, and here's the problem. You have this thing called the Davidic covenant. I said we'd come back and touch on this in the Davidic covenant, which I can't remember if it's first Samuel 17 or second Samuel 17, where the Davidic covenant is. Uh, but it, it's that idea. I believe it's second Samuel. And, and maybe it's chapter 7. But nonetheless, here, look up Davidic Covenant. It'll be there. Uh, the, the Davidic Covenant is that God promises that there will be a, um, a descendant from David who will reign literally on David's throne from, for forever. And that's referring to the millennium. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. My heart is not David's throne. Doesn't look like it, does it? Your heart is covered with a donuts right now with a, your your donut tie. So yeah, it's covered with my donut tie. But, uh, but <laughs> no, it's not David's throne. Though. No, and the other thing is, is David's throne is not in heaven, right? David's throne is on in Jerusalem, right? Right, and and this is a literal interpretation we're talking about now. For these things to happen, you believe the Bible literally, and it was written literally. Mm-hmm. So if you're believing these other things that God's reigning in your heart right now, so. Then the the Antichrist rule, the Battle of Armageddon, all these things are are what I mean. How, I don't know how they just miss these major things because Christ even talked about in the Olivet Discourse, the very events that's described in Revelation. He gave us a for a preview of what he would be talking about in Revelation, and it's just like none of that stuff really matters. And you'll hear some people that have the amillennialist view. They'll say, "Don't even worry about that stuff. It, it, it's not relevant." So God just filled up some books of the Bible just with nonsense that's not to be worried about. And the reason I think that goes to this point is they don't want you looking at prophecy because part of the prophecy is the great falling away and the apostasy that would be taught and the love of many waxing cold and all the false teachers. Because if you believe all that stuff literally and you hear these guys talking, you put two and two together, these are the guys we were being warned about. Right. And it's it's important to also understand this here. I, I will hit the, the one side uh, that of dispensational theology that I think people really use it as an excuse. And here's the thing, good theology is never an excuse to be lazy. And people often try to do that. And that drives me nuts. It ought to spur us to be even more right. But uh, they like to use this as an escapism theology. As Patrick went and mentioned that most dispensationalists are pre-tribulational in their view of the rapture. Uh, Some are mid-trib, some are pre-wrath, but most are pre-tribulational. And, and here's the thing, they like to use this as an escapism of saying, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens because I'm going to escape it anyway when Christ returns. The problem is, is that Christ has commanded us to be watching, to be waiting, to be working for him. Dispensationalism, pre-tribulationalism, it is not an excuse to be lazy. The Great Commission extends to the to the extent of our lives, however that life ends, whether it be in a rapture or whatever you believe, a second coming or in your death, you are called to work. That These other things that, that God has told us will happen, what Christ said will come to be, will take care of themselves. What's not taking care of itself is your responsibility to God to go out and, and preach the word of God, to try to reach the lost souls and to edify and try to make disciples of those that are saved. This is our responsibility. The rest of it takes care of itself. Are we going to do our job or not? Right. That is the big question. Now, I, I will say one thing, because I don't think that we quite touched on this when we we're talking about the difference between Israel and the church. And so I'll just bring this up really quick here. Uh, dispensationalists believe that the church started on, on the day of Pentecost generally. There are mm-hmm. some who believe 
um, that it started sometime in Christ's life, but nonetheless, it's it, it's in the New Testament as to when they believe that uh, that the church started. Uh, most dispensationalists believe uh, that it was on the day of Pentecost. And that's something important to understand because it's saying that there is a distinction. A distinction of the church is having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, which is not necessarily a distinction uh, of Israel uh, in the, the olden days. Not all of Israel had the Holy Spirit living within them. It sounds good. That's a good point to bring up. Yep. So, anything else we really need to hit on? No, I think we're kind of running up against our time here. So, uh... All right, well... For the Shining Light Podcast, this is Pastor Sam. Forgot what our name was there for a second. <laughs> for the Shining Light Podcast, this is Pastor Sam. And Patrick, no compromise with Eve. I got that one right. Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> Have a great day.